Welcome to Mission to Inspire, where we share life experiences in our careers, personal lives, society, culture, religion, finance, family, and much more. Meet your host, Shola Ajabadi, as she takes you on a ride to fuel your inspiration. Mission to Inspire. My name is Shola and I'm your host on Mission to Inspire today. I've got my guest with me today. His name is Ronald. Hi, Ronald. How are you? I'm very good. Farting <laughs> fit <is> dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I quote that word, farting fit and dangerous, they go, wow. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I wanted to know what that actually means. Yeah. Well, you know what I've observed? This is amazing. I've observed that in Australia, New Zealand, China, America, and so on and so on. When you say this, most people, how are you feeling? You know what they say? Not no. bad. You ask me, how do I feel? I'll tell you, not bad. I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes what actually happens, it's it's a tone. You see, they go, how are you feeling? Mm-hmm. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. Not bad. Exactly. Or, or go, no, I'm not bad. Not bad, yes. You see, yes. So the, the different tones can yeah. tell me straight away where they are. You see, right. if you go, if you go, not bad. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're feeling lousy. Right. <laughs> you but if you go, not bad, it's yeah. like semi-lousy. <laughs> All right. But when you say sensational, terrific, uh-huh. yes. or fight, fit, and dangerous, it's yeah. like you're, you're a boxer. You're ready to fight. It locks in the brain, and the brain picks it up every time somebody asks you. You go, not bad, not bad. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and I tell you what, it plays. It, it makes a huge difference, a huge, huge difference to your to your body thinking, your positiveness, your negativeness, whatever it is. It does, you know. Yes. And 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 you know, I I either use terrific, mm-hmm. sensational, and I don't say sensational, <laughs> sensational. With all the feelings. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, I've got the full smorgasbord. I'm sensational. I'm sensational. Exactly. Look at, that, look at my hands. Sensational. In other words, look at that. Abundance. Exactly. That's true. You, you can, Thank you, can you even, so much. Yeah, you can even use the word, I feel abundant. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, Steve. Yeah. Thank you for that, yeah. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Who is Ronald? <laughs> well, um, where do I start? Um, oh. well, basically, basically I, I'll start from a pretty interesting position. Yeah. My 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 great great grandfather, and I do see great great grandfather. Yes. Was born in Edinburgh in Scotland, right? Oh. Okay. And that was in ninety in nineteen fifty. Okay, 1950, he was born, and he was actually an engineer with trains, right? And in those days, they had steam trains. So, cutting long story short, he was born there, and then he went across to France, and his name was Thomas Honeywood Simpson. Really oh. nice, name. Very, okay. very, very, very cleansy. Thomas Honeywood Simpson, that was his name. So, yeah. he went across to France, mm-hmm. and he met, he met a lady there in Provence called... Yeah. Eva de la Rue, which means the road belonged to the family. So they were wealthy people, obviously. Right? So they got married. Mm-hmm. The British government said to him, listen, we want you to go to Mauritius on the sailing ships 
yes. with train paths, with yes. train paths, so that you can build the train lines to get the sugarcane from the fields in Mauritius to the actual factory where they make the molasses for the sugar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so it was an, quite an adventure. So he left, he left France, left uh, Scotland, went all the way down there, went all the way around the coast of Africa, past Madagascar, right? And yeah. then so, the, so you've got you got Africa, you've got Madagascar, you've got Reunion Island, Mauritius Island, Rodriguez Island, Flat Island, it's all all Seychelles, the whole little islands, right? Mm -hmm. And he landed in Mauritius. Now Mauritius is not a big place. It's about 60, 70 miles long and about mm -hmm. 50 miles across. Very small place, but absolutely fantastic island. Wow. It's surrounded by sea, blue water, mm -hmm. great fishing. Food everywhere because it's souls volcanic. Wow. It was a paradise that people had lived there at the time, right? Yeah. So he, when he got there, he, end, he got he got the first kid called Sam Samuel, right? And that was my grandfather. So my great grandfather Thomas Honeywoods. Yes. Okay, yes. He bought my grandfather called Sam. So Sam then got my dad Willie. Willie was the eldest, and then Willie got me, right? So we so we we all stem from that line. So there was so he was from the Scottish side and French, but Sam, my dad and I, we were born in Mauritius. Okay, that's where we we're born. But our background was not Mauritian; it was from from Europe. You from see, Scotland, isn't it? Yeah, from Scotland. So anyway, so so what happened was amazing. So so I did my schooling there. I got great schooling. I had Irish brothers. Mm. The me, they taught me really good English. They taught me French. They taught me mathematics, chemistry, physics. Yeah. I got really, really good education. Right? Very, very young. Like, and my mum was a school teacher. She taught us geography. Anyway, cut a long story short, in 1963, I was about 16, right, 16, 17. And my dad said to me, listen, Ronald, he said, I'm concerned about you kids. There's three of us. Right? There's me as the eldest. There's my sister, Rosalind. Mm. Is my brother Brian, right? So, so, so I'm I'm two years ahead of her. She's two years later, and then my brother's five years later. So, so it was three of us. So, me, sister, brother, right? And mm. so we all get on. So, so what happened? Uh, my brother, my dad got me, and he said, "Listen, Ronald, you're 16, 17. Um, I'm thinking of emigrating." You know, and 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 I said, "Oh, I see. I know what that meant." You know. And he said, he said, what, what country would you choose? I said, why do you want to leave? She said, he said, listen, this place is so small. It's a beautiful place. It's got some good food, good seas, fantastic climate. He said, the problem you've got is that there's so many people coming here. It's going to reach a million, million people. It'll be, we'll be, you'll be over that. There'll be, there'll be, there won't be any land left. And you, and he, and he said, I'm about 40. So I'm halfway to my life, but you guys are still young. You need to go somewhere where it's going to grow. And he said to me, and he said to me, which country would you choose? I'm thinking of three. He said, South Africa, mm -hmm. England, or Australia. Right? And he said, what do you think? You know what I said to him? I said, South Africa, the problem with South Africa is that it's a great country. It's got some really good features, good sea, good fishing good food the problem you've got is that the the, the the people the natives are being badly mistreated by the boas right and the Dutch, very badly mistreated and eventually they will revolt because their country they will revolt and we could we could have a massacre in our hands i said and we'll be seen as white mm. and then 
we'll get massacred along. I said, I wouldn't go there. I know we've got people who go there, but, but 10 years from now, 20 years from now, different story. And he said, what about England? You know what I said to him? I said, England. I said, when we go to the Navy Club in Mauritius, where all the sailors there got no rank, nothing. Mm. You were a top engineer. We're well-dressed. We're coming there to the club. And they look at us like, you know, like this. And I said, I said they got, they've got bad attitude. I said, not only that, Uncle Emmanuel, right, who's a, who's a, who's a, who's a, professor, he's a professor of agriculture, he did seven years in England, okay. became a doctor of agriculture, he moaned all the time about England that in winter he had to have seven blankets. He was that cold. And I said, why would we want to leave 28 degrees to go to a zero or five degrees? Mm. I said, oh, I see. He said, okay, I see your point. And he said, what, so what do you say? I said, Australia. I said, because Australia's got only 8 million people. That was in 1963, 8 million people. I said, it's a huge continent, mm. right? And I, and I said, my, we've been taught there's seven UKs can fit in Australia, seven, right? Is that big, such a big continent? It's huge, right? And I said, they, they, they've got room for 22, 30, 35 million. We go there, we'll, we'll be the pioneers and then we, we'll be able to get great jobs, great future and so on and so on. So, so my dad applied and he, he had six degrees in engineering, six from wow. welding, welding to uh, guillotine operating, steel making, bending, you know, fixing things, butcher's equipment. He was clever, right? So he applied, guess what? Within three weeks, the Australian government looked at his pedigree and he went, we want you because you can teach these young Australians how to be a good apprentice in steel and whatever. And he was designing scabbard knives. He was designing, you know, all kinds of cabinets for the butchers. He, he was very clever. Yeah. And so, but he'd worked in the railways as well, like the whole family. But, but when he went to Australia, within two weeks, he got the job. He got a job from this, 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 uh, this steel factory where they made stainless steel, like, equipment okay and they specialize in butcher equipment so dad fell right into it and he was there for a long long time he taught 58 young australians 58 wow. to become wow. to become top tradesmen 58 interesting wow mm. so what was the amazing part in those days there was no superannuation okay mm -hmm. yeah. and when dad retired he got a gold watch and that was it that was it right and he, des he designed a world-class scabbard for knives for the butchers. World-class was was, and the the boss patented it and made a lot of money from it. But he never gave dad a cent, just the salary. So, but dad wasn't a businessman; he was like an engineer. So, anyway, when when I arrived in Australia, this is really funny. I arrived in Australia. It was February 1964. I still remember February 1964. I arrived there. We had 56 cents in our pockets. That's all we had left. 56 cents. That's all we had left. So dad, dad was not a rich man, but but he, he had he had vision. So we, we arrived there. We arrived in Sydney. We had 56 cents in our pocket, and we got to get to Melbourne because my uncle's there waiting for us, right? Mm. And, and we were the youngest youngest uh, uh, brother to my dad, right? Mm. So so and he said, look, come, guys. We'll be, you'll be welcome. You'll do well here. And, and Henry worked in a cigarette factory. He was the engineer to make the cigarettes, right? Right, yeah. And he was quite clever. He said to me, listen, Ronald, he said, you were 16, 17 odd. 
you've got you've got really intelligent, but you but you don't have a degree in in anything. You just got intelligence from school. He said, but I can get you a job at the factory. Right? This is really interesting. Get you mm -hmm. at the factory in a cigarette factory. Yeah. It's like Storm and Clark. You put box in box and then you put in trucks. You get paid. You get paid something. And wow. you get paid in pounds. You get paid in Australian pounds, right? In those days. They call it quids. Mm -hmm. so, so I said, okay, why not? So anyway, the next day, I traveled with him to the factory in a place called Collingwood. And uh, and I got the job at 10 o'clock. I was in overalls, bang, got the job. And they were paying me about probably 30 pounds a week, right? Which was which was good money back then, 64. Mm. Now you could get a pint of beer for 20 cents. Wow. 20 pence. 20 pence were pint of beer. Now mm. it's five pounds, five or five dollars. Can you see the changes in that time? Mm. Right. Anyway, anyway, I so I got the job. And my boss was a real tough guy. You know, he, he, you'd go in the toilet for five minutes, he'd come and knock on your door and get you out. Got to work, got to work, you know. And and he himself was just sitting in there drinking his coffee, smoking. And the workers like me, we had to work like sweat in the heat. And you know? I thought, oh, right. So anyway, three months later, I've had enough. I said, this, I didn't come to Australia just to put boxes in boxes and boxes and boxes of cigarettes. Cigarettes anyway, it's deadly. And I remember... I remember what triggered me is my my Henry called me and he said, listen, Ron, I want to show you something. Come over from the store, come over to where the engines are making a cigarette and I'll show you something. I went, yeah, okay. So I took time out. I went out there and it was this machine, this big machine, right? It was about 15 feet wide, about six feet across. Yeah. This thing could spit 3,000 cigarettes in one hour. Wow. 3,000. It was that advanced. So so, so they'd put the tobacco and all the mixtures and so on, and mm -hmm. then they would spit the cigarettes, all made up, all made up like cigarettes, right? And then he showed me something fascinating. It, it was a, there was a beaker next to him with all this black gunk in it. Black gunk was gunk, and it was a chemicals like used for fire retardants. That's how you, that's how you transfer tobacco into making fire retardant cigarettes. You see what I've discovered? If you took a leaf of tobacco and you dry it and you smoke it. It'll just burst in the flames. So it's, it's not a cigarette, right? You have to turn to a cigarette so people can smoke it. You see? Yeah. I, I, I've seen tobacco farmers try to smoke the tobacco leaf. It doesn't work. It just burns like that, the big flame. So I went, that's interesting. And I said, what's in that gunk? He said, 3,000 chemicals. 3,000. The lab is there. You go to the lab. You, they, they mix it all up. He said that is used as a fire retardant for the cigarettes. So when you when you puff on a cigarette, it doesn't burn. It just you have to suck on it to make it burn. I went, oh wow! But the chemicals were in the cigarette, weren't they? Yeah. It, they they'd got integrated in the tobacco, right? So right there and then I went, gee, you know that's that's I'm not touching. I'm not. I never. I, I was no way. I'm not smoking this. And they were giving us sixty cigarettes a week for free. To encourage us to smoke. Guess what I did with them? I put them in a bin. Oh. I, did, I, did, I was that I was that in that switched on. I wouldn't even give it to people because I knew they'd get they'd die eventually. Tossed it out, you know. So anyway, I, I, after three months, this is where fate comes in. In three months, I got on the train from Collingwood and I had to go up all the way to a place called McLeod, which is about 35 minutes by train. And this is where fate intervened. Really, three months exactly it was. 
Because mm. my, my, my brain had gone, no, I don't want to work in a cigarette factory anymore. I've got to find something else, right? So anyway, I got down there and I was so in-depth in my thought. I, I, I was supposed to be stopped at a place called McLeod, right? That's where we lived. We ended up at the end of the line called Hurstbridge. I ended up at the end of the line, Hurstbridge. It was like 25 minutes away. And then I went, where the hell am I? And I realized I was at the end of the line, the railway line. So I took the train back and I got back home about 8.30, 9 o'clock. And then my mum made me some, some supper. And this is where the fate came in, right? I'm watching this black and white TV. Thank you for joining us today on Mission to Inspire. Subscribe if you have not already done so. Like, comment, leave a message. Let's stay connected. Let's jointly inspire the world.